welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm Season 3 podcast with a case and campaign update. I'm Philip Walker, Media Coordinator of the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign. On the legal front, there has been little in the way of updates at this time. However, we can assure you that the Criminal Cases Review Commission are being proactive in their review of the evidence which has been submitted to them and we hope to have some positive news to share with you soon. You may recall that last month we informed you about the lack of action by Essex Police to address, let alone investigate, any of the complaints that we have made regarding the actions of two key police officers in the case, DSI Ainsley and DI Cook. This inaction has resulted in a legal appeal being lodged with the Independent Office for Peace Complaints, the IOPC. Since this appeal was lodged, Essex Police have returned further negative decisions on two additional issues they had previously chosen, for reasons unknown, to completely ignore, which had made up part of the original 2002 complaint. These two issues have now been added to the appeal lodged with the IOPC. The timescale for a response from the IOPC is currently unknown, however we will bring you further news as and when we have any. Moving on to campaign news. Following on from the article in the Mail on Sunday, on the 15th of October, there have been an additional three articles in the paper. The first, dated 6th of November, highlighted the call from Conservative MP Jackie Dore Price for an urgent review of Jeremy's case in order, as she put it, to protect the integrity of our justice system. Following this were two detailed articles on the 26th and 27th of November, which further elaborated on the new evidence regarding the burn marks to Neville Bamber's back, stated at trial to have been caused by an act of torture by Jeremy. It is now clear that these burns were not caused by the rifle, either with or without a silencer attached, as the trial had been informed, but were instead from the hot auger. In addition, the article set out how Essex Police restaged the crime scene prior to the crime scene photos being taken. This misleading evidence presented at trial on both of these issues could well have influenced the jury's deliberations and the 10 to 2 majority of verdict that they reached. There will be lots more information on all of the new evidence to come in the media in the very near future and we will promote this on social media as and when it happens. Since the last update, we were very saddened to be informed of the passing of our dear patron and supporter, Eric Allison, who died on the 2nd of November, following a recent diagnosis of secondary bone cancer. Eric was a very proud to hold the position of prison correspondent for the Guardian newspaper, a role he began in 2003. Eric hated injustice in every form and fought tirelessly to raise awareness of a wealth of different injustices and prison-related issues, and was widely known and respected for standing up for the underdog. Never afraid to bring the facts to public attention, Eric was involved in many causes, including Jeremy's wrongful conviction. Eric first became aware of Jeremy's fight for justice through his conversations with Stephen Phelps, who was responsible for the popular TV series Rough Justice and Trial and Error in the 1990s. Eric immediately began to research Jeremy's case and it wasn't long before he became determined to help Jeremy achieve justice, writing to him and speaking to him on the phone on a regular basis. 
That is, until Eric recorded a telephone conversation with Jeremy to allow him a public voice. Publication of this conversation in the media led to all telephone contact between them being stopped by the prison service, but this did not deter Eric from raising as much awareness as possible of Jeremy's plight. He soon became a much treasured patron of the campaign and a close friend of the team, especially Yvonne, whom he always referred to affectionately as my learned friend. Yvonne and I were proud to represent Jeremy and the campaign at the Manchester Monastery on Friday the 2nd of December for a memorial held in Eric's honour. The monastery was filled with approximately 200 people from all walks of life who came to pay their respects to Eric the Red, so called because of his love of Manchester United and his strong socialist beliefs. It was lovely to be able to meet friends old and new and share our memories of an admirable man who had such an interesting life. We will all miss Eric immensely. Jeremy wrote the following tribute to Eric. I will miss Eric. I am so saddened by his passing and extend my deepest condolences to his family. He was a lovely man who was full of kindness and empathy and I am particularly sorry that he will not be with us to see his extensive labours on my case bear fruit. Moving on to this month's podcast, this is an episode with narration by the actor Steve Wraith which discusses the evidence regarding the Bible in the case and how the jury were deceived on this issue. Welcome to this Jeremy Bamba and White House Farm podcast season three. In today's episode, we explore the issue of the Bible, photographed as open and leaning against the upper part of Sheila's right arm. Blood staining can be seen on the cover and a crocheted cloth and note are tucked within its pages. In witness statements and at trial, there were conflicting testimonies regarding the position of the Bible. For example, Anne Eaton and Julie Mugford stated that they were told that it was on Sheila's chest, and this assertion is also contained in the witness statements of police officers. In addition, three members of the raid team set out to DCI Dickinson in the post-trial inquiry that the Bible was in a different position than on her chest or leaning against her arm when they saw it. So why would this change? Why would the Bible be moved? And indeed, was it moved? The issue and others in relation to disclosure relevant to the Bible will now be discussed in detail. Looking at the crime scene photographs, a Bible can be seen, opened with the pages leaning against the top of Sheila's right arm. This was important evidence because as far as the defence were concerned, it suggested that Sheila had killed herself, whereas the prosecution's stance was that Jeremy had placed the Bible there to set the scene and such create a murder-suicide scenario. The same photographs show the top of a handwritten note and a crocheted cloth protruding from the pages of the Bible. Photographs of the reverse side of the note and the cloth have never been disclosed. It is possible that the reverse side of the note is a suicide letter which Stan Jones stated during an interview with the Metropolitan Police was discovered at the scene and which said, I've just killed myself. The Bible was allocated the reference identity of DRH44 as set out in the Scenes of Crime documents. However, recent analysis of the Home Office Forensic Science Laboratory Submissions of Exhibits list makes no mention whatsoever of the Bible or the reference DRH44 in relation to it. Why is that not recorded? Does the lack of recording this exhibit at the lab indicate that the blood on and in the Bible was never forensically examined 
and that the blood was not sampled, let alone identified. It would have been extremely negligent not to have done so, but we believe the blood can be seen on and within the pages of the Bible, must have been forensically tested to establish who the source of it was, and the documents relating to these tests were later hidden from the defence. One factor which supports this is that we now know fingerprints in blood were logged as being present on the Bible and its pages, and therefore it seems inconceivable that blood groupings were not taken during the fingerprint recovery process. This can be proven to a high degree of certainty because the note within the pages of the Bible is recorded on forensic documents and, in the evidence of D.I. Cook, it had an identifiable bloodied fingerprint on it, which was allocated the reference number 31340-85EC. The identity of the source of this bloody fingerprint has never been disclosed. You can be certain that the fingerprint did not match any of Jeremy's fingerprints, or it would have been used as evidence by the Crown. Was the blood on the note and on the Bible just Sheila's, or was blood from any of the other deceased present? It is unlikely we'll ever know because, as with the majority of potentially exculpatory evidence, the identity of the source of the blood remains hidden from the defence. In 2002, the Court of Appeal partially addressed issues regarding the blood staining on the Bible's pages and concluded that the photographs record the blood staining on the Bible. From this staining, it is immediately obvious that the Bible has been shut, whereas the blood remained wet because marks on one page are mirrored on the adjoining page. It does not seem very likely that it, the blood, was still wet hours after the event when the police might have handled it. If this is so, it was shut by someone and then reopened to lie beside the body after Sheila Caffell had been shot. Point one. And... The explanation why the pages at which the Bible was opened was not explored by the defence may be explicable by these matters. Counsel, with the experience of Mr Rivlin QC and with his acknowledged reputation for thoroughness, may well have decided that far from helping these matters might have presented a yet further major hurdle for the appellant to be overcome and consequently decided to leave well alone. The assertion by the judges in 2002 is flawed because the proposition that the Bible was reopened by someone after Sheila was shot only holds good if the blood was hers and came from her fatal wounds. But there is no evidence whatsoever to support that. The evidence provided by the prosecution instructed expert Martin Ismail in 2002 set out that Sheila was moved and that the Bible was placed against her arm at some time after her death. His conclusions read, Kefel has then moved or been moved into the flat position in which she was found. There is an open Bible on the floor next to Sheila Kefel's body and a note appears to be in contact with her arm. Two blood trails appear to run underneath this note. If the note had been in contact with Kefel's arm when the blood was running, then I would expect to have seen some pooling at the interface between the arm and the note. There is no pooling apparent, therefore I conclude that the Bible was deposited after the blood ran across the upper arm. Photographs 3 and 6A. Although Ismail did not give evidence at the appeal hearing, the judges still relied on his conclusions and stated the following about his report. Our conclusion was that we should not therefore admit the evidence, and we have had no regard to it in reaching our conclusion. It can however be said about it, that if it had been called a trial, 
it may well have represented yet another formidable string to the prosecution's bow in a case where, even without any regard to that evidence, it has to be said that the prosecution were able to put forward a very strong case pointing to guilt. The judge's assertions would only apply if it could be shown that the Bible was in the original position and was not moved after the police had entered the house. But it was moved after the police entered the house and prior to any photographs being taken. So how do we know this? The first anomalies came from the evidence of Julie Mugford and Anne Eaton, who both stated that they were told by the police that the Bible was on Sheila's chest when she was discovered. In her statement dated 8th of September, Mugford stated, I will add that sometime after the 7th of August 1985, Anne Eaton asked me if I knew about a Bible which was near Sheila, and I told her that I didn't, and it was found on her chest. I think I told her it was creepy. I think she asked me about the Bible on the Friday of the week of the murders. In her statement of the same date, Anne Eaton gave evidence that One of the officers told me Aunt June Bamba and Sheila were both on the bed, shot, with Sheila Bamba having a Bible on her chest with the gun beside her. Robert Bowflower also hypothesised in one version of his diary, written after the 7th of September 1985, that he believed that Jeremy had said, Lie down here, darling. Put the Bible on your chest. The Bible is placed on her chest. Oddly, none of these witnesses spoke about the Bible prior to the 8th of September, when Jeremy was arrested for the first time. When Eaton and Mugford were questioned at trial, they were asked if at any stage they had discussed the issue of the position of the Bible. They both denied that this had happened despite the evidence to the contrary which had been provided by Eaton in her September statement. At the time of the trial, it was necessary to make the jury believe that Mugford and the relatives had not been discussing evidence which could be used against Jeremy. However, we recently found proof that they had discussed evidence as set out by Jones in his statement to the Met Police in 2002, in which he said, I'm saying Anne Eaton, because she was in contact with Julie and myself, we'd talked. The strongest evidence regarding manipulation of the scene, and in particular the fact the Bible had been moved by the police themselves, was given by members of the raid team. During the 1986 post-trial Dickinson investigation, when three of the first six raid team officers to enter the house were interviewed separately, they revealed the following. P.S. Adams stated, Photo of Sheila, not in the same position as when I saw it. Head, one, too close to bedside table. Two, not sure about angle of head, but something not right. Three, no recollection of gun. Four, Bible shown next to body was level with her waist, 12 to 18 inches away. PC Collins and I had a conversation about the position of the Bible. His opinion could have her there, sitting up reading, put it down away from body. PC Collins said, Queries photo, Bible forward slash head Sheila. DC Delgado said, looked at video photographs of scene. As a result, PC Collins and I not happy with position of the Bible by Sheila's body. In other words, these three officers who were amongst the first six members of the raid team to enter the house and were interviewed separately by DCI Dickinson all questioned the position of the Bible as shown on the crime scene images. This strongly suggests that the Bible must have been moved at some time between 8.10am when Sheila's body was discovered and 10am when DC Bird began taking the photographs. The pathologist 
Dr. Vanizes, had also provided evidence in his notes to Dickinson, which read, Position of Bible on top of arm. As you may be aware, Dr. Vanizes did not attend the scene until the 8th of August, and therefore was he shown different photographs than had been disclosed to the defence. Furthermore, a document titled For Information Only, dated 30th of September 1986, written by Malcolm Fletcher, describes the Bible as being located in another conflicting position as he recorded. By using an object to press the trigger with, but what? If it was the Bible, then how did it get into the position it was found in, i.e. on top of Sheila Kefel? This evidence regarding the differing positions the Bible was seen in also leads us to ask about the integrity of other areas of the scene. Put simply, if the Bible was moved, what else was moved? The evidence we now have shows that the scene as a whole was not as it was when the police entered the house. And this important factor is something that the jury and defence should have been given the opportunity to consider at trial but were denied. Documents disclosed in 2011 also reveal that Essex police conducted forensic testing of fingerprints which were taken from the bloody Bible. A positive result was achieved. This was not disclosed at the trial. Indeed, the deception by police in this instance went further. The defence's forensic scientist wrote to Paul Terzian a few weeks before the trial and stated, A wealth of good quality fingerprints are now regularly being found by use of chemical treatments on paper that the Holy Bible was not examined was incomprehensible. So, not only did Essex police tell Terzian that the Bible had been destroyed, as I will discuss later, but they also told the defence that nobody at all, even the prosecution, had tested the Bible for fingerprints at any stage. This was an outright lie, because in his witness statement dated the 21st of March 1986, disclosed to the defence in 2011, Scenes of Crime Officer D.I. Ron Cook says, It, the Bible, was subsequently subjected to chemical fingerprints treatment, resulting in the development of a large number of impressions. All of these impressions, with the exception of one, have either been identified as those of June Bamba or were insufficient for identification purposes. The outstanding impression gives the appearance of not being that of an adult, but is more consistent with that of a child, possibly under the age of 10 years. The fingers and palm prints were not taken from the two boys, Daniel and Nicholas Caffell. But in 1999, D.I. Cook went further during an interview with a filmmaker, in that he now said, The Bible found next to Sheila was checked for fingerprints and found to carry both Sheila's and June's. In other words, Cook recanted on his original claim that Sheila's fingerprints were not identified. Further, he made no mention of the fingerprint recovered from the note and failed to disclose whom this was made by, despite him allocating it a forensic reference identity. In 1999, the defence made a request to the CCRC for the result of these fingerprint tests to be disclosed, but no documents containing the result of the tests have ever been provided. At trial, Cook admitted that neither he nor any of the officers who attended wore gloves at the scene. It is therefore reasonable to assume that there is a possibility the fingerprints of police officers and scenes of crime officers could easily have been transferred to exhibits which they handled and seized. In September 85, Essex police requested the fingerprints should be taken from all police officers and civilians who had entered the house. The evidence now shows that scenes of crime officer DC Henderson was present on the 7th of August 1985. And on the fingerprint document created by Essex Police, his name has three ticks and a question mark next to it. This is indicative that his fingerprints were identified three times 
and a possible fourth. In 2002, the Court of Appeal judge stated that the Bible was a material exhibit and was available at the time of trial, but it was not exhibited, nor was it assigned a court exhibit number, and therefore it could not have been a trial exhibit. In fact, in 2002, Jeremy's trial solicitor, Paul Terzion, gave evidence that he had been informed that the Bible had been destroyed and no photographs of it existed. He stated, I have a recollection of specifically asking an officer whether the police knew of the pages at which the Bible lay open, or had a photograph of the same, and I was told that they did not have any photographs and were unaware of the pages in question. Mr Terzian agreed that appeal that his understanding provided to him by D.S. Stanley Jones was that the Bible had been destroyed, and as such the defence had neither seen nor had access to it in order to commission any forensic examinations. Indeed, the evidence was still confusing in 1991, during the City of London Police Inquiry, as some records document the Bible, DRH 44, being handed to relatives, whilst in other states, it had been destroyed. It is also curious that the same reference identity of DRH 44 was also assigned to the hand swabs taken from Sheila Caffell at the mortuary on the 7th of August, which were examined weeks later, after they were initially rejected at the lab. Was the act of allocating the same forensic identity to two key exhibits an intentional act to confuse the issues? We believe that it was. The pages the Bible was open at may have some bearing on the tragedy, and this was also raised by Mr Terzian in 2002. According to information from the Stoke and Church Inquiry by the Metropolitan Police, the Bible had been found open at pages 656 to 657, Psalms 51 to 55. They were interpreted by theologian Dr Gillingham of Worcester College, Oxford, in conjunction with the testimony of Sheila psychologist Dr Ferguson. Dr Gillingham's findings couldn't be more detailed or clear in her 11-page statement to the defence in which she stated, In this case, Psalm 51 could not be more pertinent. It is full of the fear of God's punishment, the need for penitence, and the need to make some extraordinary offering of contrition to make amends. She goes on, Psalm 51 could be termed a prayer of a sinner. For example, one who feels she or he has committed some great evil and so pleads forgiveness from God. Overall, the Psalms reflect Sheila's feeling of wanting to cleanse evil deeds and details and also reflect that God would release the person from sin after death. Paul Terzian provided evidence in his 2002 statement that at the time of the trial, I can confidently say that I was unaware of the pages at which the Bible lay open. In fact, I've got a recollection of specifically asking an officer whether the police knew of the pages at which the Bible lay open, or had a photograph of the same, and I was told they did not have any photographs and were unaware of the pages in question. In an attempt to pacify the defence on the issue, Mr Terzian was given a picture showing the pages at which the Bible was opened by the Metropolitan Police, and concluded... In my judgment, these passages clearly, potentially, bear upon Sheila Caffell's mental state at the time of the murders. Given that their contents closely relate to the manifestation of her illness, I cannot imagine that we would not have sought to place the evidence before the jury. However, the image shown to Mr Terzian of the pages that the Bible was opened at was another act of deception. Holmes, Box 5662, which was disclosed for the first time in 2011, contains black and white photocopies of a number of additional photographs of six more bloodstained and marked pages of the Bible. These pages had passages underlined within them. These photographs of the additional pages were not disclosed at the trial or during the appeal and no interpretation had been made of the text of these pages. 
It is questionable whether the Psalms that Dr. Gillingham examined were actually the pages that the Bible was found open at beside Sheila's body. This is because the page number at which the Bible was stated to have been opened does not correspond to the same point on the spine or the thickness of the pages in the photographs. Neither does it correspond to the pages photographed in examinations carried out by the defence using an identical Bible. Secondly, the other six pages, which were undisclosed, that were found to be both bloodied and underlined, appear to be relevant to the cleansing of evil. Furthermore, Sheila had handled the pages that Dr. Gillingham interpreted what must be her bloodied prints appear on the page. The same document also contained a black and white photocopy of the notes that can be seen protruding from the Bible. This note appears to have been heavily bloodstained with a fingerprint in the blood identified and referenced as 313-40-85EC. It has never been confirmed whether this was tested or attributed to anyone. The photocopied black and white images in Holmes Box 5662, disclosed after the conclusion of appeal, are the only images of these bloodstained pages in note. No photograph images have ever been disclosed. Likewise, photographs of the crocheted cloth found with the note inside the pages of the Bible also remain undisclosed. It is reasonable to ask why there is the persistent refusal to disclose material relevant to the Bible. This demonstrates not only an obstruction of justice, but also amounts to an unfair trial. The note in the pages. The note protruding from the Bible seen in photographs is bloodied and is entitled Love One Another, which is an extract from John 1334 as follows. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The nature of the passage as a whole is where Jesus predicts his own sacrifice. The passage might have real significance, and at no time did Essex police or the CPS approach Sheila's psychiatrist, who was called to give evidence at trial and ask him to comment on text contained on this note, and if it bore any significance. Police withheld clear and relevant evidence from expert witnesses, as well as the court, for no other reason than to further the prosecution case. D.S. Jones admitted in 2002 during an interview with the Met Police that a suicide note had been recovered from the scene. He recalled several times that the note stated, I've just killed myself. The reverse side of the note contained with the pages of the Bible has never been disclosed. It is therefore possible that the back of the note contains this obvious suicide note. This issue should have been fully explored at trial, yet along with the photographs of the Bible, police inexplicably have never revealed finding this note, neither logging it or making mention of it in any witness statements or any other documents. This again unknowingly drew the defence's attention away from the Bible as an exhibit when, to constitute a fair and proper trial, all facts, details and evidence relating to the Bible and the note should have been made fully transparent in court. Had the fingerprints in blood on the note been found to belong to Sheila, then it would have been significant, in that it would have been strongly suggested that she was the perpetrator. The note should have also been analysed for comparative traits to Sheila's own handwriting. This highly significant item was not disclosed to the defence, and it appears that Essex Police went to extraordinary lengths to hide its existence. Additionally, we referred earlier to a piece of crocheted cloth which is also visible on the crime scene photos with the Bible's pages. The significance of this cloth, if any, remains unknown as there is no disclosed record from the police that it was seized, examined or that the cloth ever existed at the scene at all, despite its presence in the photographs. Further disclosure issues. 
There still remains a known total of 253 photographs which remain undisclosed of the Bible and its pages. The fact was discovered during a study of the Homes Box Index Schedules. Home Box Schedule 64205 states that this is documentation relating to 252 images and sets out 252 loose photographs of fingerprints, forward slash marks on Bible, pages reference 31340 forward slash 85. Quantity have June Bamba or Unident on reverse. Holmes Box Schedule 64204 sets out one photograph of fingerprint on Bible page 1036 reference 31340 forward slash 85CG attached to item 201. And further, there appears to be a series of negatives listed as Holmes Box 64208, which says that they are in a white envelope with references. And it also contains 126 negatives of marks from the Bible. These were not copied, which implies that they were not passed on to the defence. As with the photographs in Holmes Boxes 64204 and 64205, these negative images have never been disclosed. And this therefore raises the question of why not? The CCRC are aware of this non-disclosure, and we have requested that all of these photographs and negative images are disclosed to allow the defence the opportunity to have them forensically examined as yet, no disclosure has been forthcoming. Why Essex Police have manipulated the evidence regarding the case Bible is still an unanswered question. The fact that it was clearly moved and the scene was not how the jury was led to believe it was, quite frankly, unforgivable. The movement of the Bible to be against the top of Sheila's arm allowed the Crown to mislead the jury that the Bible was placed there by Jeremy. They had a right to know that it was the police who moved it. The blatant lack of disclosure on forensic reports, statements and photographs has also allowed the police to create their own scenario. Multiple fingerprints were recovered and, had they been Jeremy's, would have been used against him. So it appears evident that the only reason the source of the prints and the blood has not been disclosed is that it shows that Sheila was the perpetrator. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to do something to help Jeremy Bamber, then sign our online petition to the Home Secretary for the disclosure of case documents that are still withheld by Essex Police. Visit www.change.org and search for Jeremy Bamber. Don't forget to share the link with your friends and family.